In this episode, I speak with the legendary Buck Brenneman, the inspiration behind the number one New York Times bestselling novel, The Horse Whisperer by Nicholas Evans, which sold over 15 million copies. Buck was also the equine technical advisor and body double for Robert Redford in the subsequent and much-loved Hollywood adaptation of the same name. For over 30 years, Buck has been working with horses and their owners, and today he is one of the world's leading practitioners of handling horses based on classical concepts from the California Vaquero tradition. Working with the horse's nature, using an understanding of how horses think and communicate to train the horse to accept humans and work confidently and responsively with them. He works to make the animal feel safe and secure around humans so that the horse and rider can achieve a true union. Buck travels most of the year doing horsemanship clinics in the United States, Europe, Australia and New Zealand. When not on the road, he lives with his wife, Mary, and their horses in Sheridan, Wyoming. Welcome to the Rare Conversations podcast. I'm Leonie Milano, and I chat with creative entrepreneurs and business owners around the world about what it takes to start, sustain, scale, and sell a business. We talk about real-life scenarios to help you understand the path before you, to inspire your journey. I transitioned from working in film, TV, and global events to working with creative entrepreneurs through mindset coaching and mentoring. I'm on a mission to help entrepreneurs embrace the journey, understand themselves better, accelerate their growth, and get the most out of life, making sure they have a hell of a lot of fun along the way. Buck, it is an absolute honor to have you on my podcast today. Thank you so much for joining me. How are you going? Good. It's my pleasure to be here. I know that you have a tremendous amount of work going on, but I think it sounds like that's what your life is all the time. But also farm life alone, I used to live out in the countryside and the daily routines and the maintenance is so much work. I like the physical side of it. I think that's always very gratifying. You, with your schedule, you must have some pretty good systems in place and pretty good people around. Well, I do, namely my wife. Right. And then in uh, this time of year, it's winter here. So uh, when I am on the road, there's a fellow comes and helps her feed the horses, uh, a local guy. I let him pasture cattle on my ranch. And then in turn, he kind of fills in for me when I'm gone. So it works out pretty good. We have, oh my gosh, we have 40 some horses on the ranch. That's a lot, a lot of work. Yeah. For years, Mary did it by herself, and uh, wow. finally, I got her to accept a little bit of help from somebody. So, yeah, there's an old saying that, that says, you never want to have a bigger ranch than what your wife can run. <laughs> but hey, she's uh, pretty determined to have yeah. looked after that many horses for that time. <laughs> yeah. How many training clinics are you running each year? Well, for the last, this year is 40 years since my first clinic that I put on. Of course, when I started out, I wasn't real busy. You know, I I sort of phased into it over, oh, three or four years. That's when I got real busy. And I've been doing between 35 and 40 clinics a year ever since. So a lot. Oh, that's a lot because they run at around four days each, don't they? Well, they used to be four days. When I started out, they were five days. And then I cut them to four days because just the travel time in between. 
And then I finally cut them to three and that works pretty good for me and gives me time to uh, get to my next clinic and play a few rounds of golf. (laughs) Right. (laughs) What is the maximum number of people that attend each training clinic? Most of the classes, the limit is 25. So there'll be two classes of 25, which would be normal. But if I do an advanced class, then I don't take so many around 15. Or if I do a cow working class, or if I do a ranch roping class, I don't take quite as many because it's just a little too much to deal with. And And in terms of giving them the attention. Right. So I know that you have the 40 horses. When you are traveling, are you rotating them throughout that duration or do you have a go-to? I do. I do. I have, uh, I carry, I'm carrying four with me this year. Normally Mm -hmm. I carry three horses with me and I'll always have one kind of experienced horse and then one kind of intermediate and then one real green horse. So I'm always kind of cycling them through because we're raising horses. So we have, oh my gosh, we have so many to ride, but I, I keep them until they're, they're pretty well educated. And then I rotate them out and then I get some more. And, and for me, uh, I've never wanted to be like a one horse wonder where I just Mm. got one really good horse and I got famous with one horse and then that's it. My life is over. So for me, I continually rotate them through so that I can progress so I can get better. It's a good growth mindset, isn't it? Yeah. It's like starting again, really keeps you fresh, doesn't it? It does. Yeah. I just came off of in the wintertime, I'm home for three months, four months sometimes. And uh, a lot of people, you know, they probably think when I go home that I sit on the couch and watch the Westerns channel or something all winter. But I actually, <laughs> that that's my time to study. I ride, I'm alone oh. every day and I ride and I study and I try to make me better. So I have more to offer the horse. Right. I'm somebody who really enjoys road trips and you have done hundreds across the States going from (laughs) ranch to ranch, probably thousands, maybe. Do you enjoy that driving time on the road? It's a lot of time that you're spending in your car. Well, at this point, yeah, at this point, um, I I don't enjoy the driving as much because I've just, I don't know what it is. A couple of years ago, I had what they call polymyalgia rheumatica. Mm-hmm. It's complicated, but it attacks your joints. Now I'm all good. I'm. I, it, it's something that you can get on the prednisone, and it eventually goes away. So I'm good now. But I've noticed now I can drive about an hour and a half, two hours, and I have to get out and walk around. It just kills me, my hips. But mm-hmm. thank goodness. Uh, I can sit on a horse for eight or nine hours. No problem. I'm good. Doesn't bother me a bit. I think it's the position of sitting in the truck. So it's for like like seven, seven hours sometimes, or maybe longer. Well, 14, 16. Oh, that's a lot. I don't think any of us are designed for that, for that long. But but the thing I enjoy is when I get there, um, it's interesting. I'll get to a facility and I'm always there first. And and it's kind of lonely. Nobody's around and you just think, why am I even here? But then everybody starts coming maybe the next day with their horses and their trucks and trailers. And there's an energy to that, that it's hard to describe, but it's like a, I don't know if you were a hippie or something, you'd call it karma or something. It's just, mm. it's a good feeling, real positive energy. And you're just like, I can't Everyone wait. Everyone coming together. And even after all these years, I'll ride out into the arena and I'll always do a demonstration riding my horse first and all the things that I'd like them to be able to do. And 
I pretty frequently I'll look around at the building and all the people there watching and I'll just think, gosh, considering where you came from, I just can't believe all these people would come all this way just to listen to hear me talk, you know? <laughs> I count my blessings. You know, I don't take it for granted after all these years. I'm I've been able to spend my entire life riding horses and I've made my living incredible riding horses and and I'm in a perfect job because for me to be successful nobody loses everybody mm. wins in my life you know so it's not Which that is way incredible. you know in a lot of businesses you might be wildly successful at it it's because someone else isn't yeah that's so, a good point so i've i've had a pretty blessed life yeah is there a way that you might end up uh although i didn't realize that you're traveling like 14 hours i was just thinking if you had it more centralized closer to your place where it's easier. Well, you know, this, is kind of, this is kind of funny. Uh, here at the ranch is kind of my refuge, right? And I do, a, I, I do a couple of clinics a year, like coming up in June, we do a huge colt starting clinic here. We'll start 60 unridden horses in four days. It's That it's must a be big, a sight to see. Uh, it's really something to see 60 horses saddled up that have never been saddled before is really quite cool. But a friend of mine and I were talking the other day, he said, you know, you've been in this long enough. Everybody knows you. You could just do clinics at home. People, you just have them come to you at the ranch and you never have to leave. And I said, yeah, but you know what the problem is with that? Everybody would be at my house. Right. <laughs> They'd be at your sanctuary. <laughs> and then, then where do like, you go? <laughs> Yeah, that's a good point. Now, you say that, and I love this, this is uh, such an incredible insight, and it took me a little while to understand. You say horses are a mirror to the soul. Can you elaborate on that? Well, the way that the horse responds to you, it is a reflection on, on your relationship with him. And, you know, sometimes people will bring a horse to my clinic and of course, the person knows ahead of time what a passion I have for the horses and, and how much they mean to me. So, of course, they're going to be on their best behavior in front of me. But the thing is, is if, if that's not the way that person is at home, the horse will tell on them every time. The horse doesn't distinguish, right? No lie. They're not going to cover for you if you're a bad guy. <laughs> When you take him oh, to town yes, and everybody, the horse is going to be like, you see what's going on here, right? You know, this isn't real. And yeah, it's pretty obvious. And of course, all of that insight comes with the experience, you know, reading lots of horses over the years, but they, they are a reflection of you in the way that they respond to you. And, you know, some, it's not always fuzzy and warm. Some horses are difficult and mm. uh, difficult to get them to, to work with you. But there's no such thing as impossible. It's, that's where mm. the horse would hopefully have the ability to adjust to fit the situation and help the horse that maybe is a little more difficult to get through to. Mm. Horse therapy or equine therapy is very effective in helping people as a mental health treatment. I was watching an Instagram live the other week, listening to a renowned psychologist Dr. Saliha Afridi. She was talking about ways for people to relieve stress and trauma in their body. And she said that walking wasn't that effective as helping. 
And what was interesting is that she suggested horse riding as being an excellent example. And she went on to talk about, I can't remember the word she used, but that part of our body and our hips, that's where we store trauma. And you really have to get in there and move your body around to release the trauma out of your body. So when people are depressed, they're laying around, they're sitting around. So they're perpetuating it. But if you are doing something like horse riding, it helps release that energy out of your body. I think she's right. You know, there's that's a you have to turn loose to the horse as much as the horse needs to turn loose to you. Yeah. Mm. It was such a fascinating insight because it makes sense. Somatic energy healers, they're always talking about that part in your body or in your heart or, or down in your hips. And given your traumatic childhood that you have spoken about, which I think has probably helped a lot of people know that they're not alone and all your subsequent work that you have done over the years with horses, that must have been a great way for you to heal, probably without you even realizing. And it reminds me of this Winston Churchill quote, there is something about the outside of a horse that is good for the inside of a man. Right. Did you intuitively just always feel better around horses? Did you know about the healing qualities of horses? No, not really. But when I was when I was a little guy, when I first went to live with my foster parents, and of course I'd been through a lot before that, um, which I wrote about in the Faraway Horses, my book. And the horses were a they were a refuge for me. That um, gosh it. They, they might be the first friend I ever had, I'd say so. And so through that, like when I first went to live with my foster parents, I didn't speak to anyone for probably four months, five months, not even my brother, because I just kind of found, well, if I don't speak to anybody, nobody bothers me, nobody threatens me, and I'm safe. It's not like I forgot how to talk. I just didn't Coping want Coping mechanism. Yeah. Mm. And I wasn't... Uh, I know it sounds weird, but I wasn't discontent by mm -hmm. not communicating with anybody. I had horses to, my foster dad loved horses. So he always had them around and he, he let me fool around with them and, and work with the Colts. Now, granted, what I was doing was pretty primitive compared to what I'm doing now, but I was 11, you know, mm. I figured out how to get it done in my own way. And the horses, they were a, they were a place for me to go to. And, you know, that's, they showed up in my life just at the perfect time, you know? So then, you know, really splash all those years later, when I wrote the faraway horses, there would be people would interview me and they'd say, well, I guess probably, you know, how some people, when they interview you, the, the questions are kind of cliched and predictable and they didn't work very hard at getting prepared. Mm. So I would get your classic question. Well, I guess when you wrote this book, this has given you lots of closure. And I'd be like, oh, gag me. <laughs> and then I would, I would say, no, I actually wrote the book because if you want to call it closure or resolution, whatever it might be, whatever mumbo jumbo you use, I achieved that a long time ago. And I'm trying to explain to people that may be in a dark place right now themselves that you don't have to stay there. And I wanted it simply to be a book that encouraged people to realize the end is not a foregone conclusion just because the beginning is a little rough. And that's why I wrote it. 100%. I didn't write it. I was fine. <laughs> mm. I, and I had been fine for a long time. 
having your foster parents having that love and it's not that difficult what kids need <laughs> it's, yeah. it's not complicated kids are not complicated there are right. so many similarities with horses and children the need Absolutely. for trust patience safety i especially love the point that you made when you said you don't expect a child to learn to write their name immediately so why are you getting frustrated with horses with these patterns that we have in our human behavior is it something that people who are attending your clinics pick up on relatively quickly and i yeah, know it's I hard it, for us to look at ourselves i think intellectually and emotionally they connect with what i'm saying pretty quick but mm. then there's a there's a journey from there to being able to actually execute that and have that happen with a horse but they certainly understand right away the parallels between uh, working with horses and working with people and the part sometimes that i'll get in the clinics is i'll tell people i say listen this is true whether you're taking care of a child and it doesn't even matter if it's an abused child or not or a horse the most loving thing you can do is give them boundaries and teach them what's right and what's wrong. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell people, for those of you that, that are of the school, that if a horse does something wrong, you beat on him. Frankly, you'd be a piss poor parent too, because you should be preemptive about that. And when you see things going the wrong direction, you change directions, you adjust, you do something preemptively to try to keep the horse out of trouble, to try to keep the kid out of trouble. After the fact, you're just getting revenge. That's all it is. And yet anybody it's that knows- It's a lazy way as well, I think. It is. It's not being connected or engaged in the first place. So then you're angry at the result when you were a part of it from neglect. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and I'll tell people, I am strict with my horses, but my horses love me as much as I love them. And being strict is not being cruel. It's giving them boundaries. That's what gives them confidence in you. Because you're not all, all over the map where you have five different personalities. You have one. You and they know one. that you're going to be there for them. Yeah. And I'm consistent. And I'm not, I don't know that I've always been this way, Leo, but um, I am, when I'm working with horses, I'm absolutely in control with my emotions, a hundred percent. And I don't know that I've always been that way. I think probably that that is achieved over time. Well, I think that's understandable. Your evolution to have come from what you experienced as a child to what you are now, the level of work is a daily practice. And it's something that I think is just too hard for people. It's not understanding how our brain works. Our brain can only go by what's happened in the past. So it thinks, well, why would I even try? It never works or, or out. The blame, or the blame game where it, it's, Anything that's yeah. unfortunate about oneself, it has to be attributed to somebody else. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's easy too. That's an easy option. So then you don't have to think about it. There's a yeah. lot. I mean, we saw it through COVID. There's a lot of the idea of sitting with yourself for any period of time is terrifying for a lot of people. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it's interesting, really. But, you know, we have so many distractions to keep us that way, to keep us yeah. programmed. It's like that. It's like I saw a deal on the internet during that deal, and they were talking to this man, said, all right, you have two options. Option A is you'll stay in your house with your wife and your children. And he said, B, B, B. Yeah, <laughs> I did see that too. It's funny, but there's so much truth to it. It's so difficult for us to work through that because, and again, as humans, 
we're drawn to what gives us pleasure and we want to avoid pain. Being in pain doesn't feel good. You have to be so aware that by feeling the uncomfortable feelings that you're actually going to get better. The words that we use convey our thoughts and our feelings. They affect how we interact with people and how we make decisions. And it got me thinking about how we describe breaking in horses. And I grew up out in the countryside. They used to say they needed to break the horse's spirit. Is this just a completely misunderstood way of training? What do you refer to it as? Well, I think when I was a kid, that's, you know, growing up in Montana, that was sort of the mentality is that it was a sort of breaking them down to where they submit, I suppose. But I'll say this about the guys that I grew up around, the cowboys that I grew up around, in their own way, they loved horses. The way the ways that they worked with horses by today's standards would be considered caveman stuff, you know, fairly mm. primitive. But I honestly, in fairness to those old guys, they were doing the best they could with what they knew. Yeah. And, you know, things change. Horsemanship has always been considered, at least by sophisticated people, one of the fine arts. And I treat it as an art form. It's not to me. Some people think of working with horses as an activity, like bowling or something. <laughs> yes, a hobby. And, yeah. And some people regard it as an art form. Well, the arts evolve. Yes. All of them. Everything. All of them. And, and so has horses at a fairly rapid rate the last hundred years. So I think in fairness, a lot of those old timers, if they would have known to be able to do some of the things that I've learned, they would have been happy to do it if they would have just known. It's learned behavior, isn't it? And like you said, it has evolved so much in the last hundred years. There's still some pretty gruesome behaviors going on in our world today. There's there's plenty of people, Leo, that if, if I ask them, what, why are you uh, approaching that horse that way? Because that's what my granddaddy did. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, that's your reason? Yeah. And I, sometimes I'll tell them, you know what? I'm way too intelligent to accept that. Mm -mm, that's not okay. Age and wisdom don't always travel together. Sometimes age will get there well in advance of it. Mm. And it's the belief systems that make up our identity. And when you have believed something your entire life and you come to the realization that that is not true, that opens you up, that exposes you and makes you so incredibly vulnerable. And yeah. that's a very scary place for people to be. It because is. what hard. do they have to hang on to then? Yeah, if they accept that, well, then it's a matter of, I have nothing now. Yeah. Everything that I thought had value doesn't have value. Yeah, it's something. And gosh, the first time, the first time I ever met Ray Hunt, I just, I, I couldn't believe a person could do those kind of things with horses. I'd had quite a bit of experience, you know, being around my foster parents' ranch and uh, blew my mind the first time I ever saw him and the way he went about things. But it fit me because coming from my dark background, the thing that I always, that was always constant with me, I was soft hearted. I was kind of a tender little guy and all the stuff that happened, it never made me bitter or hateful. It, that never changed in my, in my makeup. The fact that I was uh, empathetic, you know, mm -hmm. I, that never really changed for me. 
My brother, I wouldn't say was the same. Honestly, he was probably a little more of a survivor mm. than me. Um, and maybe cause it, he was uh, maybe kind of favored how my dad was in the first place a bit, but, uh, he would have, yeah, it was, by the time we were taken away from my dad, you know, um, domestic problems always escalate. Anybody that's been around that knows they don't ever stay the same. They always up the ante. Well, the only thing left in my family structure was homicide. That was the only thing left. It couldn't have escalated. You sensed beyond- it too. You could sense it as a yeah. child. Yeah. And I think my brother would have probably been a part of it because like I say, he's, he's a real survivor and yeah, but you know, that, that was, a, it was a, it's a weird thing to say, but all of that is a, is kind of a blessing now at this stage in my life, because when a horse is really afraid and I know that he's afraid for his life, I know what that feels like. Mm-hmm. And so do a lot of people that will be, that'll be watching this whether it's people that have been in the military in grave situations or that have been in domestic situations, that fear of death is, is amazing. It's overwhelming. And so because of that, I understand that. And I don't want the horse to feel that way. Hey everyone. I'm excited to jump in here and let you know about my upcoming program for 2022. People say knowledge is power. But that's not entirely true. If you do nothing with that knowledge, it's worthless. If you implement it, you become unstoppable. Creating your own business takes work, commitment, dedication to getting tasks done, working through the frustrations when you realize it's more than you thought and you feel like you're always on the verge of quitting. The easy thing to do is give up, but that just perpetuates a cycle because when there is something you can't stop thinking about, something that you really wanna create, you'll never be able to shake it. What we're not taught in school is how our brain actually works. It is so hardwired with our individual beliefs based on our own life experiences that it takes the utmost awareness to know what you need to do differently to achieve your goals. This is the single biggest thing that can be the deciding factor on how well you live your life. When you're starting a new business, there are stages you need to go through. Analysis, planning, testing, strategizing, taking action in tandem with accountability and support, etc. This is what I help my clients with. In my 10-week program, I'll take you from being stuck and not knowing how to grow to getting clarity and confidence that will get you to the next level. We'll make sure your niche target market offer and strategy is solid by implementing systems and a step-by-step action plan to strengthen your foundation that will allow you to grow faster than you could have imagined. You'll gain clarity and confidence with every step, not ever having to return to where you were ever again. I work with a limited number of clients at any time and to really help you, it needs to be a mutually beneficial fit. This is for someone serious about their growth, for someone who's tired of just getting by to having a healthy business that actually makes money. If this sounds like something you're interested in, send me an email to hello at leonimilano.com. That's L-E-O-N-I-M-I-L-A-N-O.com with the word apply and we can jump on a call to see if this works. If you can tell me one thing that you got out of this episode, I'll add an exclusive bonus. Now let's get back to the episode. Do you think because of your foster parents being so kind and loving and accepting and being 
a rock for you. Do you think it's probably your empathetic nature as well? It's probably both. I'm just wondering if a child has been through that. It's the energy. I think everything is energy. If something's been coming onto you, that energy has to go somewhere. And when it doesn't, it, it feeds in on itself and it manifests in these very strange ways. And that's why we see people act out of sorts. That's probably suppression and something's triggered. We can't suppress things. It's got to come out. Well, you know what was interesting about my foster parent situation is, of course, my foster mother, she was like an angel. You know, she was just the sweetest lady ever, but not weak. Mm. No. And my foster dad, he wasn't a uh, an openly sensitive guy, you know, but you could tell he cared about you, but he's probably not going to tell you. <laughs> but what was interesting is they never, ever talked to us kids about what we'd been through. They never brought it up. They didn't feel the need to. And the, and the mistake that they did not make was they weren't so overcome with uh, sympathy for our situation that they give us free reign and no boundaries. Mm. We went to work there and they just said, look, we'll treat you like one of our kids, but you have responsibilities. You got to work. You don't work. You don't eat. That's how we treat our own kids. That's how we're treating you. That's how it is. Let's get busy. So we never wallered around feeling sorry for ourselves and they mm. never really brought it to the surface to where we were allowed to uh, indulge that. We just had to join in and become a part of something. And we went to work, worked our tail off for our foster parents and loved every minute of it. It's like the story in my book, The Buckskin Gloves, that really epitomizes my first day of being there. And Do you gosh, still have those? No, I'd give anything to have. Yeah. It was such a beautiful story. They had a lot of foster kids, didn't they? Yeah, they had four kids of their own and raised 17 other boys over the years. That's yeah. extraordinary. Yeah. And that, that was before they actually had a foster care system. Mm. They were just known in the area. If you have a kid that you just don't want, can't do anything with, that you just want to get rid of them, you just take them out to the Shirley Ranch and dump them off, just like a stray cat and drive away. Yeah, it's, uh, it, th that seems to be the case. It, it's um, the, first, the first foster kid they ever had is before they had any kids of their own. And they had just bought this little ranch and it was an old homestead and it didn't amount to much. It was a kind of a starvation ranch. We rarely ever ate beef because we had to sell beef. We, My foster dad poached deer all year long. We ate deer meat. That was it. Deer meat and pitto beans, you know, they were poor. And my foster dad had heard about a man named Joe France lived down by the river. Uh, and um, he had a boy with him named Johnny, who I mentioned in my book. Johnny was a little boy. His parents had gotten killed. So he had gotten dumped off with his uncle Joe, his only relative. And Joe was an old bachelor and was just mean to Johnny. And some of the locals were talking about it. Well, my foster dad drove down there and he said, Joe, this is how it is. I'm going to take that boy and I'm going to raise him and you I'll either take him and you and I'll have no problem, or I'm going to beat you half to death, Joe. And then I'm going to take him anyway. So you pick. And, uh, Joe said, take the little bastard. And that was the beginning. And Johnny was raised by, uh, the Shirley's and, uh, he was the first one and I was the last. Right. And, and I ended up at the Shirley's because of Johnny, because at that time he was sheriff of Madison County, Montana. Yes. He got you out of the situation. Yeah. Yeah. Thank goodness. Yeah. Um, how, how our lives unravel sometimes. 
It's fate, really, isn't it? When you think of how your life can change so massively with one decision, that's uh, something I don't think people think about in their own lives is make that one decision. Um, But then the opposite, Leo, is some people are well aware of that and because of that are terrified to make a damn decision about anything. (laughs) Well, (laughs) if they don't make a decision, they stay stuck and then they don't accomplish anything. Right. Which is frustrating. Um, You were the inspiration behind Nicholas Evans' book, The Horse Whisperer, and an integral Mm. part to the movie adaptation with Robert Redford. Right. This film gets so loved and just such one of the all-time classic horse movies in existence. Had you done any prior film work? before that movie no i'd done a few tv commercials uh Mm. and that was back in the days when i was doing rope tricks for a living you know i got a few bit parts in tv commercials doing rope tricks which is totally different deal you know yeah then yeah so my first delve into the movie business was a 150 million dollar movie with bob redford you know (laughs) what a guy to have to work with (laughs) it's your first one yeah yeah yeah. does that just completely change your life from that moment? No, 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 not really. You know, uh, of course, for a while there, the movie was just so huge for a long time. Mm. I would do interviews and things and, and people would sort of ask me that. The people, well, has it just totally changed your life? I said, you know what? I'm pretty real about things. Even this movie at some point is going to be in the bargain bin at Walmart mm. and they're selling it for four bucks. And then I'm still going to be Buck Branham and I'm still going to be the guy out there doing my thing that was doing my thing long before I met Bob Redford Mm. and it was a chapter in my life, but it's not the last chapter. It was just a chapter. Do you meditate? Well, maybe, maybe I do. I don't know that I call it that, but I know this, that when I'm done working with horses every day, I'm going to, after we're done talking, I'm going to go ride all afternoon. At Mm. the end of the day, I always try to take a little bit of time to just think about every single thing that happened so that I don't have to relive it another time that I, the things that I know I need to remember, I do sort of concentrate or meditate on that so that I can store it away for the future. Yeah. It's interesting you say that and rightly so, because your life does go on. I I know of people who had done a role, a movie role, and it was from 20 or 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. But they will talk about it over and over as though they just did it last week. Right. But there's so much more life happening. Right. So much. But people will latch on to these specific things. To- yeah, there's a point where you kind of want to say, you, can, you need to let go of this. You need to move on. <laughs> I think people I think people hold on to a lot of things. I mean, that's just an example of with the movies, but people hold on to old relationships. People blame, well, I was married to them. When did this happen? 20 years ago. <laughs> it's like, well, at some point, you got to let it go. But people will hang on to it. They get stuck into a loop. We get addicted to pain and, and, and stuck in a loop. And if you're not aware and if you don't get out of that, you will just keep replaying that. You'll, you'll go through your whole life on autopilot, get to the end and all of a sudden have it right in your face. Oh, I wish I had have done this and this and this, but I didn't do it because I was so busy thinking about that one thing a hundred million yeah. times. Yeah. And that, I think that that sort of mental process is, I think of it as 
a person who is an alcoholic, but doesn't even drink, but they can still act like one Mm -hmm. because they tend to work in a loop like that. And uh, yeah, they don't have to drink to be an alcoholic. It's embedded. (laughs) Yeah, I I think it's embedded the behaviors, you know, like we talk about the trauma gets stored in your cells. And unless you are actively understanding how your body works, and you are making movement to release it, you will just get stuck in that which is, it's a shame. I I think if more people understood how it worked, I think they'd have a lot more relief. I absolutely loved the documentary Buck that was directed by Cindy Mill. From seeing The Horse Whisperer that many years ago, and I mean, it really just does have such a massive place in people's hearts. To be able to see your work behind the scenes, the processes where you got to talk about it and that you know that your work has that parallel with human behavior. Is there a chance that you will create more film work? I mean, I know you are probably documenting your work through yeah, video. You know, honestly, uh, I've wanted to do this for a long time and I haven't let go. It just hasn't worked out yet, but I really want to do a film on the faraway horses. I think it's important. I, I think it's it's an important story and it's it's a compelling story. Gosh, by word of mouth with no marketing or advertising, it sold over 200,000 copies. And they and the the publisher didn't put a penny into marketing the book. And they're basically a lot of it is stories and events and things that are very moving to people. Wait, two and how many copies? 200,000. So that's a lot. That's mind-blowing. But you know that it's resonating with people. Yeah. All these years later, I'm still signing books at my clinics. But my, I don't feel like The Faraway Horses is done until I get a feature film done. Mm-hmm. So that's still, still going to happen. I don't know how because you know, it's hard to get movies made. It takes a lot of money and takes someone who really believes in you. But hey, stranger things have happened. My, I am going to do this somehow, sometime, because I think it's an important story, especially at a time like this. I think it's a story that would make people glad they went to the movie, you know? Yeah, we've gone a bit backwards since COVID. We've Uh, gone backward quite a lot. It's a real shame. It goes to show you evidence of, like you said, the horse. The horse is not going to lie. The horse is going to show you. Well, COVID just showed where we're at. But no one either knows how to talk about it or wants to talk about it or can talk about it. But it's everywhere. Yeah, yeah, it is. And it's almost, you know, it exposed some dark things about people the last two or three years that you almost wish you didn't know. Yeah, it just because it changed their life pattern so much and threw everything into disarray, the, the way some people handled it really revealed things below the surface that you might not have even known about them. And yeah. And that's one thing, what's scary. One thing that I'll, I'll say that has happened, you know, I've always been, I'm not into social media or any of this. I'm, I'm the guy that's out there riding horses, doing my thing, working with people face to face. And so I've always kind of shied away from the internet and all that stuff even though there's probably plenty of stuff you could find out about me on the internet, but that I didn't have anything to do with. Uh, Can I just tell you, you've got about 173,000 people on one of your fan pages, by the way. Oh, (laughs) That's that's pretty pretty big. 
I got to thinking uh, during the COVID thing because I was home at the ranch and and thank goodness I had a, a great place to hide out. You know, I, I could just hide out and ride my horses and, and work my border collie. And so it, it was no complaints for me other than I missed everybody that goes to my clinics. I missed them. They're so much a part of my life. I, I missed just being with them, you know, mm. but I got to thinking, what if, what if this is permanent? What if it doesn't change? What if I can't do public events anymore? My life is over the way I know it to be. And then also in the time that I was home, I thought to myself, gosh, what I wouldn't give to be able to, to look at videos of Ray Hunt or Tom Doris oh, and, yeah. and just enjoy their magic, you know? So that got me to thinking and long story short, two years later, three years later, um, I'm only a few days away from launching the Buck Channel. And what it is, it's a website. I've been working like crazy the last couple of years doing videos, five to 10 minute vignettes mm -hmm. of everything I can think of about horses. And this website will launch in about a week. It'll be a membership website. So right now we're up to about 150 videos that I've done. And if I'm fortunate enough to live quite a while, one day there'll be a thousand videos on there. Mm -hmm. So uh, someone like you on the other side of the world, you could be working with a horse thinking, gosh, I'm having a hell of a time putting a bridle on this horse. I wonder what Buck has to say about that. Well, you'll get it on your phone. And five minutes later, you'll be like, hey, thanks, Buck. Put your mm -hmm. phone away. Yeah, so it's life changing. I have to start thinking about uh, w what I'm going to leave behind. And even though I still got some game, you know, things are fine for me right now, but I need to think long term. It's mm -hmm. not always going to be that way. I'm not always going to be able to go down the road and do these clinics face-to-face -face with people. And it'd be a shame if the same thing happened to me as what happened to Ray and Tom, that when they died, everything that was in their hearts and minds went away. The way you spoke of them made me want to find things. And you're right. There's barely anything on them. You have committed your entire life to changing so many other people's lives. That would be tragic to not have that passed on. Yeah. 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 So, and my daughter's really proud of me that I'm, I'm still a dinosaur to her. Uh, <laughs> because, you know, she's on every social Are you talking media. about in social media? Yes. Oh, Instagram. Rihanna's that, got quite a big uh, social media following. Yeah. But um, she thinks of me a little less like a dinosaur now than, than a couple of years ago. Right. <laughs> but I think she's still a dinosaur to her. Tom Dorrance, Ray Hunt. Buck Brannerman, who is next in line in this succession? Well, we'll see, but I'll say this. There's probably a dozen people, males and females, that are kind of at about the same place, and they're just doing great things. I'm just so proud of them. You know, and life changes. There'll be some attrition, maybe 20, 30 years from now. Not all of them will be doing this. I'd like to think most of them will, so we'll see, but it'll be in good hands when I'm gone. That's good to know. That's definitely good to know. And for me, having this incredible insight into horses makes me want to get back on them. You know, we go through these stages where we'll ride and then we don't do something that we love for so long. And then the time goes by. And any time when I've been horse riding more recently, it's been in touristy places. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about that. You know, when you go on these horse trail rides, hmm. And yeah. always on the home stretch, the horses are just getting impatient and 
they just want to bolt. They want to bolt all the way home. What do you do? (laughs) What do you do if you don't want to be like yanking back on the reins, like hold up, hold up, because you see they're in this, they're in a loop, they're in their own pattern. Is that? They didn't get that way overnight. And that pattern of always leaving from the same place, always coming back to the same place. They, they don't get that way overnight. They get that way over time. Well, even early on when that starts to surface where maybe he has a little more energy than what, than what you're asking for. Well, mm-hmm. you don't try to contain it or squash it or prevent it from coming out because that builds more energy in the horse, but you direct it. So you might not make a straight line home. But you might be around every tree and bush and you might move his hindquarters nice. and move around and side pass him and stop back a circle, maybe walk some figure eights to where pretty soon he's thinking, gosh, dang, are we ever going to get home? Well, I don't know. It depends <laughs> on how much energy you have. Right. So you try to spend the energy in a worthy cause, doing something useful rather than preventing the energy from coming out. So now you think about that, what I just said. Isn't that what you'd do with the kid that was kind of busy and kind of in trouble all the time? Wouldn't you just kind of get him something to do? Whether it was go play soccer with him or maybe have him go chop weeds in the garden. Before the kid explodes (laughs) into a a mess. Chopping weeds will get a kid to calm down and start acting like a sane person. Mm. You give him a job to do. The parallels. It's so fascinating. Yeah. So they need to change up their their routines of course i mean it's a living breathing thing you can't expect day in, day like out. Book. yeah Pardon? they read you like a book. the yeah. horse will read you like a book you know they're like well and that same horse you might have had hell getting him to go away from the barn you had mm-hmm. to kind of encourage him to go because he's like and then when oh, you I gotta do this around, again are you kidding me <laughs> turn around and head toward home he's looks like a mexican parade horse <laughs> Jumping up and down and yeah. all kinds of but you have to learn to direct that until mm. you've changed the behavior. And mm. if I got home with the horse and he was still kind of beside himself, I'm leaving again. I'm gonna mm. say, well, we'll go out there a couple of miles and reload because I know how I need you to go home. And until you go home that way, we'll just keep reloading and go out there a couple of miles and we'll start again. And when you're finally going with me, not in spite of me, we'll mm. both go. Because if they get into a bolt, that's it. You can't. Well, if you if you had some foundation there where you could bend them and, and kind of put the energy through their hindquarters, it would be one thing. But horses in that situation, forget it. They don't have that kind of education. So you have very little tools to work with. You're just, it's crisis management. Oh, just thinking about it. What is your favorite way to spend time with horses? Is it riding around on the ranches or roping or in the training clinics? Oh, I love it all. You know, in a couple of days, I'm going to go down to a big ranch near Douglas, Wyoming, and we're going to gather a bunch of cows and calves and do our spring work with them. So that'll be, that's really enjoyable. It's just great to get my horses out of the arena and out in big country gathering, you know, we'll be gathering 30,000 acres. Uh, I always tell people anything that you have going on in an arena, in your training of the horse, until you can go outside in the wide open and have that horse perform the same way, it's all fake what you do in a ring. Ah, right. Yes. They have to be able to do that out in the middle of nowhere and still be a good horse and responsive and respectful. Then whatever you've been doing, that's real. So they, they learn what they need to in the training clinics, and then they just need to a- adapt that to the everyday. To yeah. 
you, they have to be able to do the same thing anywhere you go. Yeah. And it's like one time someone asked Ray Hunt, they said, Ray, how come you don't teach equitation just in, in people looking proper on a horse? He said, let me tell you something. If you can ever get that horse to operate as if he's your feet and your legs, an extension of your body, you can't possibly look bad on a horse. Mm, so yeah. it's, it's uh, two as one. That's what I think of. Mm. It's a dance, like you said. Yeah. I love that description as well. It's so true. Yeah, it is. The, the pandemic, did it completely shut you down or did you, you were just at your ranch at, during that time? Yeah, it it shut me down for about four months mm. where I canceled a bunch of clinics and gosh, it was just, it was tough. But, you know, at what I say it was tough. It really wasn't compared to people that live in a city and they were shut down from going to work and they were stuck in their apartment for months. Yes. Those are the people I felt sorry for. I'm in Wyoming. It's wide open country. Mm. Um, there's plenty to do to keep me busy, even though I wanted to be working, making a living like everybody else. I don't really have anything to complain about. I thought it was tough because I wanted mm. to be working, but I know it was hard for people that live in cities and have nowhere to go. Mm. Nowhere to go. It's like close to being in prison as you could get without actually being in prison. And oh. being with other people. In the same space. Right. Yeah. You don't even have a private prison cell. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right now, I'm, I've been home for about a month because luck would have it. There's an EHV outbreak in California, equine herpes virus. So oh. really contagious and can be deadly to young horses. So I'm supposed to be on the road in California right. doing clinic. So I've been here at the ranch which Mary likes because she's been working me to death here and I shouldn't have to do this. <laughs> I, keep, I keep telling her all this stuff she wants me to do is below my pay grade, but <laughs> she's not impressed. I'm going, back, I'm going back on the road a week from today. So, right. I am very inspired by your work ethic. And I love that you said that you will keep working and, and keep learning. And I think you mentioned in your documentary was either Tom or Ray that was still roping till very late in their uh, Bill life. Dorrance. Bill Dorrance was, oh, was Bill. Still, still throwing his Riata roping and branding calves at 94. What is going on with the world when people say they're going to retire at 60? People are soft. That's all but I can I tell you. But I think it's from the industrial era. You get that being from Australia because people from Australia are pretty hardy people by nature. I think people are soft. I do. I do too. Not all of them, but I think it's become a cultural thing to just be soft and surrender. Just give up. And when we're around so much tech now, and I grew up in the countryside, I was always wanting to do what the boys were doing. And I wasn't as confident around the horses as the boys, but we'd put on our own rodeos and I could sit and watch them ride for hours. What I do remember is getting up at 6 a.m. when there's frost on the ground and there's no sun in sight and the water's frozen. You have to get out on a horse and go yeah. and round up sheep. Coming back at the end of the day where you have dirt all over your face and you are absolutely exhausted, but you feel so good. And I'll, bet you, like I'll you bet you remember this too. At the end of the day, just the... The sights and the smells, everything that affected your senses. Years later, you fondly think about mm. that. 
when you're a million miles away from that environment, just the smell of the horses and oh, the smell of horses. What is that? Going, going into the barn and just smelling all the smells that would be in the, in the barn. Uh, you never forget that. It's like it's embedded in your brain, even if it is a part of a person's past. That never leaves you. But what is it about horses that we love? I, I need to I look think, into this. I think there it's in. I think it's in our DNA. There's an ancient bond between yeah. horses and humans. Mm. It's because there are people that that just love horses that have just never had the chance to be around them, but they adore horses. And it's a I think it's part of what makes you what you are. Mm. Yeah, they're extraordinary animals. Do you have any upcoming overseas training clinics? Um, the only one I'm going to do this year, uh, I'm going to go to Italy this fall. Uh-huh. I, have, I have some good friends there. I just love them to death. Drew and Natalia. They, uh, I should say where, where you could find them. It's ranch-academy.com. Mm-hmm. And they over spend a lot of time in the States here too. And I just, they're like family to me. I love them. So I'm going to go there and do a clinic this fall and I, granted, part of it's just goofing off with Drew and Natalia. I do a three-day clinic, and, and it takes <laughs> have me a great time while you're at it. To do it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this year is going by very, very quickly. Gosh, um, it is. Now, one, one last question: Can Riata, your daughter, outrope you yet? No. <laughs> well, I remember this was uh, something that was pondered back in the documentary, and I thought, well. She's had another 10 years of riding. She's an extraordinary rider. She can really row. And she and her new husband are going to go to the branding with me in a couple of days. And granted, she'll be, if I miss a shot, she'll be the first one to bring it up. She'll be like, dad, what? Have you lost a step? (laughs) (laughs) She's sharp. She is. Does she do her own clinics? Um, she has done a little bit of that. And then she taught the horse program at Montana State University a mm. few years ago. And now her and her husband run a big ranch just north of us called the OW Ranch. Mm-hmm. And uh, it runs around 1,500 cows. And uh, they're just doing an amazing job running this ranch. And then she raises horses and sells horses and dumps them and off. She was my quite house. young when she did the um, program at the university. Yeah, she was, you know, I. That's impressive. She a, when she was a freshman, they had a cult starting program there they'd done for mm. years, and it was a little bit in disarray. And uh, she said, Dad, I put in for the job uh, doing the cult starting program. And I said, Well, well, damn, you're going to school. Yeah, I can do both. And I said, Well, um, don't you think you're a little young to be doing a cult starting program? And then, of course, she said, Well, how, how young were you when you started doing this? <laughs> Yeah. That's not that's not fair. <laughs> she said, oh, yeah. and uh, so she just thrived, did well, just had an amazing program there. Yeah, she she's definitely an inspiration. Buck, it has been an absolute pleasure to speak with you. I know you have so much going on and I'm so appreciative of your time. My pleasure. I hope I get to come over there and come over to one of your clinics. I'll hold you to it. All right. Sounds good. Thank you so much. You take care. Thank See you. you. You've just finished listening to an episode of Rare Conversations. 
If you enjoyed today's episode, I'd love for you to leave a review and share it with a friend who you think would be interested in this topic. And if you have a business question, please send it in to us. We may very well answer it in our next episode. So be sure to tag me on social media at Leonie Milano. The show notes and other information can be found on our website at www.leonimilano.com. Thank you again for listening and we look forward to having you back with us again soon.